out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Dave Dean of 100 Days of Fallen. Here we are. Surprise, it's still October until it's not. Friday day. So we're reading the trial of Julian Assange. Some of these chapters are enormously long. So what we're going to do is we're going to invite some people. Okay. There's a lot of full rooms here today, so we'll see if we can get some audience pickup. And uh, so this is a look across the Atlantic from the trial of Julian Assange, a story of persecution. I'll just resume my reading. Death threats from America. On the 16th of August, 2012, Julian Assange's request for asylum was officially approved by the Ecuadorian government. He had justified his need for diplomatic protection based on the 1951 UN Refugee Convention. This request is made in the belief that I will be sent to the United States where, as a result of my imputed political opinions, I will be persecuted. This persecution will take place in the form of prosecution for political reasons and excessive punishment if convicted and in inhumane treatment all contrary to the convention. American politics or American politicians and journalists have no room sorry, let me begin that sentence again. American politicians and journalists have left no room for doubt that Assange would be prosecuted primarily for political reasons rather than for real crimes. Shortly after the WikiLeaks revelations of twenty ten, which primarily concerned the United States, they began to prepare the ground for Assange's public prejudgment. Assange's asylum request to President Correa provides a list of accusations, defamations, and threats made against him. Among the most salient, we find, I think a man is a high-tech terrorist, he's done an enormous damage to our country, and I think he needs to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And if that becomes a problem, we need to change the law. And that's U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell, 5th of December 2010. President Obama should put a, out a contract and maybe use a drone or something. I think Assange should be assassinated, actually. I wouldn't be unhappy if Assange disappeared. And that's Tom Flanagan, former chief of staff to Canadian Prime, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, 30th of November 2010. Let's be clear. WikiLeaks is not a news organization, it's a criminal enterprise. Its reason for existence is to obtain classified national security information and disseminate it as widely as possible, including to the United States enemies. These actions are likely a violation of the Espionage Act. They arguably, arguably constitute material support for terrorism. And that's Mark Thiessen, a former speechwriter for George W. Bush, 3rd August of 2010, speechwriter, not a lawyer. Why can't we act forcefully against WikiLeaks? Why can't we use our various assets to harass, snatch, or neutralize Julian Assange and his collaborators wherever they are? Why can't we disrupt and destroy WikiLeaks in both cyberspace and physical space to the extent possible? Why can't we warn others of repercussions from assisting this criminal enterprise hostile to the United States. Let's go ahead and invite some people. Bill Crystal, journalist 
30th November 2010 Julian Assange poses a clear and present danger to American national security the WikiLeaks founder is more than a reckless provocateur he is aiding and abetting terrorists in their war against America the, the administration must take care of the problem effectively and permanently this is Jeffrey Kuhner columnist for the Washington Post columnist 2nd December 2010 Julian Assange is engaged in warfare information terrorism which leads people to getting killed and is terrorism and Julian Assange is engaged in terrorism he should be treated as an enemy combatant and this is Newt Gingrich polemic former speaker of the House of Representatives 5th, do, 5th December 2010 quote a dead man can't leak this stuff the guy is a traitor he has broken every law of the United States he is not and I am not for the death penalty so there's only one way to do it illegally shoot the son of a bitch this is Robert presidential candidate Walter Mondale 6 December of 2010 asked whether Assange was a high-tech terrorist or whistleblower akin to those who release the Pentagon Papers I would argue that it's closer to being a high-tech terrorist this guy has done things and put in jeopardy the lives and occupations of people in other parts of the world he's made it difficult to conduct our business with our allies and our friends it has done damage this is Joe Biden vice president under Barack Obama currently 46th president of the United States 19 December of 2010 Hi, Reggie. Strikingly, all of these statements are based on arguments of national security and use terms such as treason, espionage, terrorism, hostility, combatant, and warfare. The preferred solution appears to be Assange's extrajudicial assassination. Asked by Fox News about the WikiLeaks revelations, Donald Trump said on 2nd December 2010, I think it's disgraceful. I think there should be, like, death penalty or something. It was Trump, of course, who, during his term as 45th U.S. president, would finally force the indictment and arrest of Assange. Equating Assange with a terrorist is not just a question of semantics. Since 9-11, Presidents Bush and Obama had institutionalized a machinery of state-sanctioned assassination through systematic drone strikes against a suspected terrorist. Gone was the need for positive identification as a lawful military target. Gone the need of an imminent threat. Gone the right of every suspect to a fair trial before being sentenced to death. Largely unchallenged by world public opinion, these assassinations conveniently avoided lengthy trials and burdensome due process requirements such as the presumption of innocence, the prohibition of arbitrariness, and public scrutiny by external observers. When confronted with a request under the Freedom of Information Act on whether the CIA had plans to assassinate Assange, the agency on 27 October 2010 responded evasively that the existence or non-existence of such plans could be neither confirmed nor denied. As so often in the assessment of evidence, it is of crucial importance to ask the right questions. In this case, the right question is not, of course, whether the CIA's reply explicitly confirms an assassination plan against Assange, which the agency would never do, but 
whether the agency would have given the same answer with respect to someone whose assassination had never been considered. Just as in the case of Hillary Clinton's joke response to allegations that she had contemplated droning Assange, the absence of a firm denial is more revealing than the verbal content of the reply. In fact, according to an extensive investigative article published by Yahoo News on 26 September 2021, several former officials of the Trump administration confirmed that, after WikiLeaks exposed the CIA's worldwide hacking operations in the Vault 7 release of March 2017, various options for direct action against Assange were discussed at the highest level of the U.S. government, including his kidnapping, rendition, and assassination. These allegations were corroborated by evidence emerging from court proceedings against UC Global in Madrid. Secret State Security Trial WikiLeaks had confronted the world with truths that were difficult to digest. The war crimes, human rights violations, and other machinations exposed in these publications were massive. From the perspective of the rule of law, such revelations called for far-reaching institutional reforms in order to prevent similar violations from recurring in the future, but also for a thorough process of justice and redress for the harm done. Soldiers, officials, and political leaders had to be held accountable and innumerable victims and their families compensated. But also the people of Western democracies were challenged to question their own perception of reality to give up their comforting illusions and take responsibility, political responsibility. And as always, when people are involuntarily pushed towards expanding their awareness and acknowledging disturbing truths, they initially respond with strategies of denial. A particularly effective psychological pattern is to deny any responsibility or wrongdoing and to demonize the messenger instead. Accordingly, the entire world was soon slandering Assange as a terrorist, a traitor, a spy, and a rapist, all emotionally, strongly prejudicial labels that were meant to justify his persecution and distract from the uncomfortable truths he had laid bare. If the unwarranted demonization of Assange is a fairly straightforward phenomenon, from the psychosocial and neurobiological point of view, it does raise major human rights concerns. State-sanctioned threats, humiliation, and vilification, whether expressed or merely tolerated by the authorities, are incompatible with human dignity, and depending on the circumstances may well amount to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment, or in extreme cases even torture. Moreover, in the view of the strong prejudice that has been publicly expressed by politicians, mass media, and commentators, it is almost impossible for Assange to expect a fair trial in the United States, given that in any criminal trial the defendant is presumed innocent until proved guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, his acquittal must be at least conceivable. But even the boldest idealist would probably rule out the possibility of Assange being found innocent in the U.S. Espionage Court of Alexandria. The U.S. government and its reliable partners have not spent tens of millions of dollars persecuting and demonizing this man for an entire decade only to give him the satisfaction of being acquitted of any wrongdoing in an American court. An aggravating factor are the system, systemic flaws embedded in the U.S. criminal justice system, which relies heavily on intimidation, 
coercion, and violence to achieve its goals. Central to this is the instrument of plea bargaining, which is used to settle roughly 9 out of 10 criminal cases throughout the country. A plea bargain is a deal between the prosecution and the defense that comes about when a suspect agrees to plead guilty, usually to a lesser offense, or agrees to testify against another suspect in favor of the prosecution. As a reward for such cooperation, in the case of witnesses, it could also be called bribery. The prosecutor then demands a lesser sentence or drops some or all of the charges altogether. The state thus not only relieves itself of having to prove its accusations beyond a reasonable doubt, it also does not risk any compensation claims for unjustified pretrial detention. The defendant, in turn, does not run the risk of a jury finding him guilty and the court imposing the maximum sentence. Plea bargains cannot work without a coercive threat scenario that scares defendants into submission. This is often achieved by threatening grotesque prison sentences of up to several centuries, or even the death penalty. The purpose is to intimidate defendants to such an extent that they no longer invoke the presumption of innocence, but accept a plea bargain even if it requires a false confession or testimony. It is the exact same rationale that characterizes torture. Defendants know that in return for their cooperation, they might get away with three years in prison instead of 30 and with better prison conditions, or that in serious cases they can at least avoid a death penalty. To virtually all defendants, this looks more appealing than the prospect of wasting years in court, accumulating huge legal fees, spending the whole time in prison anyway, and possibly being found guilty by an unpredictable jury. Obviously, the overriding purpose of such a coercive criminal justice system is not to ensure truth and justice, but to force a maximum number of convictions, rightful or wrongful. Equally obviously, it is not conducive to developing or maintaining professional investigative skills, to reducing or eradicating crime, judicial error and arbitrariness, or to alleviating overcrowded prisons. As a result, the United States, with merely 3% of the world's population, incarcerates no less than 25% of all prisoners worldwide. In trials involving national security, such as the one Assange would face after his extradition to the United States, the threat of draconian penalties is routinely used to break defendants. For example, the sentence demanded for whistleblower and former CIA agent John Kiryaku was 45 years in prison. In a television interview in 2007, Kiryaku had given de detailed information about CIA tortured methods, including the notorious waterboarding. This method involves the victim's simulated drowning, interrupted only after unconsciousness has set in and shortly before death by asphyxiation. The victim is then medically resuscitated, and the process is repeated 30 times, 50 times, 100 times, and at least one case as many as 183 times. The description of the method as simulated drowning does not mean that waterboarding is less traumatic than actual drowning. The agony is the same. The only difference is that the torture prevents the victim's physical death from occurring so that their excruciating pain and suffering can be repeatedly inflicted.
Kiriakou was accused of having violated his duty of non-disclosure because his testimony allegedly permitted the identification of some of the torturers. In a breathtaking reversal of justice, one would sooner expect from a criminal organization than from a democratic state, it was a crime witness who was arrested and charged, not the criminal perpetrators he had exposed. Like Assange, Kiriakou was charged at the notorious espionage court in the Eastern District of Virginia. In the United States, anyone who is facing a trial by jury and can afford it hires a jury consultant. His job is to go through the list of possible jurors and develop defense strategies tailored to the individual jurors based on their personal profiles. Reportedly, Kiriakou's consultant had previously assisted O.J. Simpson and had never lost a case. But when the consultant went through the documents and saw the list of potential jurors, he had only one piece of advice for Kiriakou. In any other district, I'd say, let's go for it. We're going to win. But your jury is going to be made up of people with friends, relatives at the CIA, the Pentagon, national security, intelligence contractors. You don't stand a chance. Just take the deal. The context of his assessment is that Alexandria is located in the immediate vicinity of Washington. So any jury reflecting the average population will be made up primarily of people who work for the government, have friends or relatives in the CIA or the Pentagon, or generally tend to be sympathetic to the national security establishment. While this is unlikely to have much bearing on a standard trial for robbery or embezzlement, it is strongly conducive to bias and national security cases. This may well be the reason why the U.S. Department of Justice seems to systematically try such cases in the Federal District of Alexandria, even though there are theoretically almost 100 such districts available nationwide. Kiriakou followed the advice and took the deal. He pleaded partially guilty and went to prison for 30 months instead of 45 years. This made him a convicted felon, and President Obama had achieved his goals of consolidating the illegality of whistleblowing. No president in U.S. history has prosecuted as many whistleblowers as Obama, who not only ensured complete impunity for state-sponsored torture, but also prevented any other form of accountability for U.S. war crimes. After World War II, Japanese soldiers who had used waterboarding against American prisoners were convicted of war crimes and sentenced to at least 15 years by the United States. But when the CIA used the same method against suspected terrorists, the United States lacked the strength and integrity to hold them to account. After taking office, Obama acknowledged that waterboarding was torture and a mistake. But the president now wanted to look forward as opposed to looking backwards. The Nobel Peace Prize laureate reassured the public that he didn't want any witch hunts. No witch hunts for torturers, war criminals, and their superiors, that is. For all those who alerted the public to such crimes, however, the president made an exception. In Obama's view, it was not the torturers and war criminals who had betrayed American values, but those men and women in uniform who, unlike the president, had refused to become complicit in these crimes and had chosen to become whistleblowers instead. In Sicily, they call this code of silence omerta, if 
Julian Assange is extradited to the United States. His trial will be held at Espionage Court in Alexandria before jury, just like the one that would have tried Kiriakou. The proceedings will take place behind closed doors in the absence of the press and public, and based on evidence that will not be accessible to either Assange or his defense counsel due to imperative quote-unquote national security concerns, of course. In short, the United States Assange would get a secret state security trial very similar to those who routinely conducted in dictatorships and other authoritarian regimes. At the espionage court in Alexandria, no national security defendant has ever been acquitted. The case of Chelsea Manning. The case of Chelsea Manning was not resolved through, plea, through a plea bargain. Manning, who leaked the collateral murder video as well as the material for the Afghan war diary, the Iraq war logs, and Cablegate to WikiLeaks in 2010, pleaded guilty to 10 of 22 charges voluntarily and out of principle, not in return for a reward or other bargain. She explained her moral motivation. She wanted to trigger a much-needed public discussion about the misconduct of the U.S. military and thereby contribute to positive change. In July 2013, a military court at Fort Meade in Maryland found her guilty on 19 of 22 charges and, despite her confession, sentenced her to 35 years in prison for theft of government property and espionage, among other charges. Prosecutors had demanded even more extreme sentences of 60 years, but Manning was acquitted of the most serious charge of aiding the enemy. Clearly Manning had violated her duty of non-disclosure as a soldier. In doing so, she had committed an offense, and even though there's no evidence that anyone had been seriously harmed in terms of motivation, Manning did not seek to enrich herself or to help the enemy, but she wanted to denounce the systematic violation of the values to which she felt committed to as a soldier. Truth, law, and justice. After unsuccessfully trying to do so through internal reporting channels, she first offered the material to the mainstream press. Only when she was met with indifference there as well did she finally reach out to WikiLeaks. She provided evidence of war crimes, human rights abuses, and corruption that the public might otherwise never have known about. But the Antiquated Espionage Act does not allow for a public interest defense. The duty of silence is absolute just in, like in the Mafia. Accordingly, the indisputable public interest in having war crimes exposed and prosecuted was not taken into consideration in the conviction and sentencing of Manning, and the same would apply in the trial of Assange under the Espionage Act. Manning was arrested on 27th May of 2010. For the first two months, she was held in a military facility camp at Camp Arif John in Kuwait, and then after her re repatriation to the United States on 29 July at Quantico, naval base in Virginia. In a harrowing article published in The Guardian 2016, Manning described her solitary confinement during that period. She recalled sitting in front of a mirrored wall through which two Marines watched her every move, 17 hours a day. No sleep was permitted between early morning and 8 p.m. No lying down, no leaning against the wall, no physical exercise. Deprived of her personal belongings, all she could do was get up occasionally, walk around in her tiny cell and dance because that was not considered physical exercise. Occasionally three guards would take her outside to a fenced-in area the size of a basketball court where she was allowed to walk around for 20 minutes. If she stopped even once, the break would end immediately and Manning would be taken back to her cell. 
Visits were only allowed for a few hours a month from family, friends, and lawyers. Manning met them behind a thick glass wall. Hands and feet shackled, and some of her conversations were recorded. She was not even permitted to sleep through the night. The guards woke her up as soon as she tried to turn to the wall. Finally, in late December 2010, my predecessor in the office, Juan Mendez, formally protested against Manning's detention conditions and in May of 2011 requested permission for a personal prison visit with her. Contrary to the standard rules applicable to prison visits by UN Special Rapporteur, the U.S. authorities did not permit an unsupervised interview with Manning, which would have been necessary for an objective evaluation of her treatment and conditions of detention. Mendez had no choice but to decline the visit the same would foreseeably happen to me and my successors if we tried to visit Julian Assange in a U.S. Supermax prison. In fact, since the creation of the mandate of the Special Rapporteur on Torture in 1985, no mandate holder has ever been able to conduct official prison visits in the United States. In December of 2016, the Obama administration tried to convince me to carry out a country visit to the U.S. before the end of Obama's presidency on 20 January 2017, presumably to provide a bit of window dressing for the outgoing president's human rights legacy. When I insisted that I would visit only on the condition of unrestricted access to all places of detention, including confidential interviews with the inmates held under special administrative measures at Guantanamo Bay, the conversation was over. Shortly thereafter, on 17 January of 2017, President Obama commuted Manning's 35-year sentence, ensuring her release on 17 May of 2017, Obama's decision often described as a generous act of humanity. The reality is less flattering, the President having come under increasing criticism for his war against whistleblowers towards the end of his second term in office. His commutation of Manning's sentence more likely represented another 11th-hour attempt and mitigating reputational risk. On 11 January of 2009, the New York Times had quoted the President-elect Obama as reluctant to prosecute the war crimes committed during the Bush administration because he did not wish for extraordinarily talented people at the CIA to suddenly feel like they've got to spend all their time looking over their shoulders. The President was not too worried, however, about Manning enduring seven years behind bars almost entirely during Obama's two terms in office, for alerting the public to those war crimes. While Manning breaches of non-disclosure were an exclusive matter of U.S. domestic law, the Geneva Conventions do not allow the U.S. President any discretion whatsoever with regard to the prosecution and punishment of war crimes. Moreover, as Commander-in-Chief, refusing to prosecute torture and war crimes committed by his subordinates, President Obama clearly incurred personal criminal liability under the Nuremberg Principles and the Doctrine of Command and Superior Responsibility. Manning's persecution did not end with her release. In March of 2019, she was called to testify against Assange by the secret grand jury in Alexandria, Virginia, when Manning refused to give the requested testimony. The judge jailed her for contempt of court for 60 days. A week after her release, she was again subpoenaed. When she again declined, Manning was placed in coercive detention. She was to remain locked up until she gave requested testimony. 
Additionally, she would be subjected to a daily fine of $500 beginning on the 30th day and of $1,000 beginning on the 60th day of remittance. A few months later, on 1 November 2019, I formally protested the U.S. government against Manning's coercive detention. I conclude that such deprivation of liberty does not constitute a circumscribed sanction for a specific offense, but an open-ended, progressively severe measure of coercion, fulfilling all the constitutive elements of torture or other cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. It is one thing to punish, when, punish someone with a defined prison sentence for refusing to testify in court, but it is quite another to subject a witness to indefinite detention in order to force her to testify, thus incrementally increasing her suffering until she breaks. Former, the former is lawful sanction, the latter is prohibited torture. Because of the purely coercive nature of the actions taken against her, I demanded Manning's immediate release, as well as the return of any fines improperly obtained. Despite the urgency of my appeal, I never received any reply from the U.S. authorities. And even the publication of my letter and its dissemination in the mass media two months later failed to elicit any official response. Then happened what I had feared the most. On Wednesday, 11 March 2020, shortly after 12 noon, Chelsea Manning attempted to commit suicide in prison. In the end, the severity of the suffering inflicted by her endless coercive detention had simply become too much to bear. She was found in time and survived, but the judge had now seen the writing on the wall and ordered Manning's release, supposedly because her testimony before grand jury was no longer necessary. She received no compensation for her arbitrary detention, nor was she relieved of her accumulated fine of $256,000. Will Julian Assange, too, have to attempt suicide before the world finally opens their eyes to what's being done to him, through him, to all of us? Okay, I'm going to stop there. It's been 30 minutes. Uh, we can pick up Chapter 9 at Special Administrative Measures. I thank you for joining today during our reading of the trial of Julian Assange. So, not not the most bright and shiny, uh, joyous work, but be glad you're alive and breathing and able to do things outside of a prison cell. I'm thanking God for that pretty strongly today. So, this is grim stuff. Uh, okay. Well, you've been listening to The Unsanctioned Citizen. We'll be resuming um, programming tomorrow on the 17th day of 100 days of, of Colin. It's going to be an AI and tech roundup. We're probably going to be focusing largely on the Musk buy of Twitter. Just saying. So hopefully you'll join us tomorrow in the afternoon, like early afternoon on a Saturday. Um, thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts, and call-in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.